Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. My name is Samantha Thomas and our guest today is Dr. Dwayne Godwin, Professor of Neurobiology and Anatomy at Wake Forest University. Dr. Godwin contributes regularly to the journal Scientific American in the form of comics covering current issues in neuroscience. He produces these comics in collaboration with Jorge Chom, the author of PhD Comics. Recent topics have included Alzheimer's disease, the placebo effect, fear conditioning, and love. Today, we'll talk about the art of turning complex scientific concepts into comics and how he uses this medium to reach a broad audience. With that, here's Dr. Godwin. My name is Dwayne Godwin. I'm a professor, and I'm the dean of the graduate school at Wake Forest University. I'm an NIH-funded researcher, and I study things like brain excitability and conditions like epilepsy and withdrawal seizures. But I also have an active public outreach, and I blog at brainfacts.org, and I tweet at Brainiacs, uh, and that's Brainiacs, like A-C-T-S, not Brainiac like uh, Superman's arch foe. And then there are the comics, which is, I guess, part of what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so let's start talking about these comics. So you're, you write these for Scientific American, and tell us a little about how you got started doing that. Uh, it, it is kind of an unusual form of outreach, but um, it, it came from a very honest place. I, I grew up reading comics mm-hmm. and science fiction. And, you know, I read other stuff, too, but... As a as a child, this stimulated my imagination, and and I would really attribute my interest in science fiction uh, to why I became a scientist, at least in part. And the neuroscience comics really started when I invited Jorge Chom to speak to our graduate students. So this was in my role as dean, or or I wasn't dean at the time; I was a, an assistant dean. It was about six years ago. Jorge is, uh, as you may know, is pretty famous on his own right for his work at PhD Comics. But he's kind of becoming a mini-mogul of sorts, and he's branching out into other kinds of projects. But PhD Comics is about life as a graduate student, Mm -hmm. and it has this rich cast of characters, and it's a recurring uh, strip. And he does other things with it, but he he also goes out and he does uh, what I would say is motivational speaking for graduate students to kind of give them hope that there's you know, an end to, uh, you know, this process of getting a Ph.D. Much and needed he, hope. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, much needed. Yeah, you know, and as the dean, I see, you know, that there is a need and there, you know, there are really serious uh, concerns of people going into science. So I'm, I'm approaching this from a num- number of perspectives. So uh, George, uh, Jorge and I got the chance to spend some time together when he was visiting, you know, just talking. And we found that even though we had a lot of different experiences growing up, uh, he w- he wasn't he was born in Panama, I believe, and grew up and and you know part of his life was spent there. And I'm from South Alabama originally, so even though we were very different, we had some things in common. And you know, one of those was a love of science and an early love of comics. So we could sit there and really just talk about X-Men. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the level at which we connected. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were having lunch and basically just started discussing the complexity of the brain because he was interested in that. And, you know, and, and just started posing an interesting question. You know, what a challenge 
it would be to translate that complexity using what's thought of as a very simple medium. And I, and I guess if there's a sort of foundational concept, it's really that we're continually asking the question, how do you take the most complicated thing in the known universe and convey it through what many people look down on as mm-hmm. a simple art form? You know, so how can we really turn people's expectations upside down? And, you know, part of, the, of it was that I just read Scott McCloud's book, Understanding Comics. And if you, even if you're not, you know, into comic books, if you're kind of interested in comics sort of scientifically, Understanding Comics is a great read because it tells you a lot about the iconography of comics, you know, what, what it is that comics does to our brain. And I was coming to appreciate the potential of this medium at a whole different level. I teach medical students. You know, it's part of what I do as a faculty member at the university. And I integrate videos and animations into my lectures. And, and I started thinking, you know, comics are somewhere at the fringe of my teaching style and, and a really useful fringe. Comics allow you to adopt a perspective that isn't easily achieved in the real world. You know, where else, where else could you stand inside a synapse? Or how else would you travel through time to look in on Mark Twain or Benjamin Franklin or Aristotle? You know, the, the possibilities just really seemed endless and even a little bit overwhelming. So, uh, you know, from there, you know, we did, we just started. We didn't know what the heck we were going to do. <laughs> we, we didn't know. And, you know, we didn't know if anybody else would even be interested in what we were trying to do. But Jorge had a connection at the Stanford D School, you know, the design school of Stanford. And about 2008, we just started doing some neuroscience comics for free for the magazine Ambidextrous. Now, what, you may ask, did neuroscience comics have to do with design? Years later, I still have no idea. <laughs> but they took us in. And, and I don't know whether anyone actually liked what we were doing. I still don't know. And I, but you know what? I didn't dwell on it too much because at the moment, I was just doing it because it was fun. And we just sort of developed a way to tell these stories based on just, you know, questions about, you know, how do we think and, you know, what happens when we lie and, you know, things like that. Yeah, I, I like that you, you really touched on what makes comics a good, a good medium. I mean, I read some of your stuff and it's very engaging. And I think part of it is because you're watching these people and you're listening to them talk back and forth or you're... Um, you know, uh, th- there's something really accessible about it. and Yeah, well, I'm, gl- I'm glad you, you feel that way. And also, I think, you know, it's comics are as much what we bring to it as what it is. You know, so uh, a big thing, you know, about comics is what happens between panels. And there's so much filling in, uh, you know, based on our cognitive process that it's it's really kind of an amazing interactive medium. You know, it's sort of an iPad without the touch screen in a way because you, you really are bringing so much to the the iconic aspects of movement and and representation within that medium so you know I, I guess you know so we were happy doing what we were doing for ambidextrous but then something 
wonderful happen. We won a contest, and this was sponsored by Science Magazine and the National Science Foundation called the Science and Engineering Visualization Challenge. And I think it was the first comic strip to win. So I was looking at the categories. I said, well, you know, we're doing this, and it's kind of interesting and a little bit different, so we'll try this out. And there was a category called informational graphics, and I never really thought about what we're doing is informational graphics, but I thought, well, you know, that's about as close as it gets, mm-hmm. so we, we did that. And then, you know, we won. And and that comic still gets a lot of attention because in that comic that we won with, it was on brain development, we basically just described how to build a brain, you know, in two pages. And and the other reason I get a kick out of it secretly uh, is that many scientists aspire to be published in Science Magazine, but little did I know it would be a comic that would get me in. And so I take some secret pleasure in that. So we, then we moved to um, Scientific American Mind and, you know, generally Scientific American in 2009, but we're actually published, uh, a hard copy version is published in, my, in the magazine Scientific American Mind. We did that uh, transition in 2009. And we've been regular contributors since then. So that's the other thing we are. We're regular contributors to Scientific American. And, you know, if, I think generally people are lucky if they get an article every now and then. Mm-hmm. But we're there every single issue. And we, when we did that, we had to change our format from what was a two-page format in ambidextrous to a single-page format. And that should be easier, right? You know, you would think two pages to one. Well, it's going to be easy. No, no. Because what was almost impossible in two pages became even more impossible because we're already playing with something like 300 words to convey, you know, mm-hmm. a pretty high-order concept. And now we needed to tell a story with about half that, you know. If a picture's worth a thousand words, and really for this stuff it is, it truly is, suddenly the canvas was a lot smaller. And yeah. that's where we are today. Yeah, so, so I want you to talk a little bit more about... Um, uh, how you balance um, education and entertainment when you're making these comics, and and how you how how you choose what goes into one? Because like you said, they're very complicated topics. They, and I'm sure you are you you are very sensitive to the fact that there are enormous amounts of you know research behind these these topics that yes. you're trying to compress into one page and make it fun, <laughs> right? That's right. Talk right. about that challenge. Sure. Uh, you know, I would say the single um, word answer is imperfectly. That's the answer. But, you know, I think the reason that Jorge and I work well together is that our egos are in check and we respect what the other one brings to the project. Mm-hmm. So generally what happens is I'll script the, the comic and Jorge will draw it. But that's not a completely fair description for either of us. Often, because when I started out, actually, I wanted to be a commercial artist. And then I changed and became a neuroscientist, and it was kind of it was a very conscious decision on my part. But often Jorge will play a major role in crafting and cutting the text, and sometimes I'll even draw a layout of a panel or two, at least in sufficient detail that he can just take it and run with it. So Jorge always does the finishes because he's the illustrator, and I think his style actually is what makes it special. I think people really love that style. Likewise, I tend to be very academic, and, you know, as an academic and as a professor, I want to cram in so much scientific detail that, you know, it it could be off-putting, and that's where Jorge helps shorten it or refine it. I'll 
basically develop a narrative line and then craft a description of several key concepts related to the basic theme of whatever the comic is that time. Um, you know, many don't make it into the final comic, and the key balance is really just making it light without that lightness creating inaccuracy. And in terms of, uh, you know, what we do and, and how we choose a topic, what we're really shooting for is a little compelling story that will hold your attention for a few minutes, and it doesn't really trip you up with a lot of technical jargon, but you walk away with some kind of conceptual understanding, you know, sort of shoot from the hip understanding of something maybe you didn't know that you cared about. And if you do get inspired, there's enough detail that you can look it up and you can find out more if you want to. And if I had to sum up what it is we're trying to do, uh, I would say, you know, three words, learning without teaching, you know, or preaching. Mm. So, you know, that, that's kind of the approach. And in terms of what it is, uh, you know, I, I read science and nature, and we try to find something that's timely or something that's controversial that people care something about. So, you know, uh, the Brain Initiative came out. We did a comic strip on the president's Brain Initiative. Right. You know, we've done things on uh, vaccines, you know, why, why it's a good idea to get your shots and, you know, some of the controversy surrounding the relationship between vaccines and autism. We covered that. And then we'll do something very general, you know, that is just one of the recent ones that we did was on uh, fear conditioning and the origins of, um, you know, how we come to think of learned fear. So, you know, it, if, if it's a topic in neuroscience, it's fair game. But generally, we always look at it from the perspective of what's the, what's the real compelling story? So, you know, so for example, we did one on the placebo effect. And, you know, I've always been fascinated by the placebo effect. You know, how can you give someone a sugar pill and they actually feel better? You know, what is it that you, you're bringing to that transaction? And then I started doing some research on it and looking back historically, you know, because if this thing exists, then it should have been here for some time. And there was this guy, Franz Mesmer, who claimed to have discovered something called animal magnetism, a sort of magnetic fluid that he believed that he could control. And he'd demonstrate this effect in people in this sort of salon setting, you know. And then, you know, Louis XVI found this just as interesting as you and I would. You know, here's this guy doing this stuff. It's a little creepy and steampunkish. <laughs> you know, so he decided, Louis XVI said, well, who better to look at this than Benjamin Franklin and Antoine Lavoisier? So, you know, these are like, you know, they undertook medicine's first publicly performed placebo-controlled experiment. Benjamin Franklin and Antoine Lavoisier. They were like superheroes at the time. They were the, le they were the original League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and they were there at his disposal. So everybody knows who Franklin is, but Lavoisier was a cool cat, and he was highly accomplished in his own right. This is the guy that would um, very, very, soon, very soon before that, you know, just a little time before that, had named Oxygen. And the year before mm -hmm. that, named hydrogen, and he opposed the the ongoing you know the the 
vital humors theory. He constructed like the, the metric system, and he wrote the first list, the first periodic table. That was this guy. He was, he was in every way sort of Franklin's counterpart in Europe. And so when I was reading about this, I just totally geeked out. And, you know, and, and the comic that we were starting to do, uh, you know, I started like freaking out and wanted to do an homage to the cover of Giant Size X-Men number one, you know, just to show these guys kind of bursting out. You know, they're going to take on the placebo effect. But, you know, Jorge held me back, and probably wisely, because, you know, it, was, it just would have been too much of a geek out, I think, <laughs> if I'd done what I wanted to do. Anyway, so they were commissioned by Louis XVI to examine the claims, and that was the first placebo-controlled trial. They asked, you know, these folks to identify objects that had previously been uh, you know, in, instilled with a vital fluid, and so they would test trees and flasks of water, and they were blinded. You know, so it was the first blinding experiment, and I think they literally blinded them by putting blindfolds on them. And they went on to examine these patients, but then attributed, you know, these effects, which are really very real effects, to, uh, to the placebo effect. So, you know, why is it important to understand this? Because, you know, it's useful to understand that there are places in our brain and mechanisms that can make us feel better just when we believe it, if we just believe it. And it's also important because 230 years later, there are still people peddling mesmerism. They just don't call it that. I think that, you know, at least illustrates, you know, if, if, even if you're not interested in placebo effect, gosh, if you, if you're not interested in Benjamin Franklin and this really crazy thing that they did, that, you know, that, that, that's kind of the portal through which I think people get hooked. And then you bring them in and you talk about some of the deeper meaning of it. And, and that's what we're shooting for. Yeah. And sometimes you, you do have a message to your comics. I think, um, I think your Alzheimer's one kind of, you know, time is running out to do something about Alzheimer's, right. Or the contact sports one, um, yeah, uh, kind yeah, of a the, public service, like protect yeah, kids from exactly. traumatic head injury. Um, yeah, it, it is. There is sort of a public service announcement kind of um, aspect to what we do. To some of part, them, right? Not to all. To some of them, and not not all of them, certainly. But if there's one where, you know, I'm a parent, and I'm also, uh, you know, I'm a son, and when I think about my place in society and and the plight of people that I care about. You know, it's it's hard not to let that bleed into what you're doing. Uh, it's, you know, there's one that we did on uh, the dangers of distracted driving. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've seen too many horrible stories um, about that. Not to, you know, that's part of society, and I think that's the other part of the comics. We try to bring society into the comics, but so, so because we do that, again, that's a, that's in part it's a narrative hook, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, hopefully um, places it in a more interesting context without being too preachy, but allowing the person who's um, reading the comic to understand that there is a real issue here and there is, it, there is a science-based issue, but it is occurring in the context of a larger society. So um, <clears throat> the, the public perception of... Uh uh, neuroscience. Can, can you kind of talk about why it's important to you that people 
be informed about what's being done, um, what's being studied, and so you know a couple. Of, let me encapsulate it this way: a couple of years ago, Gallup or some other you know survey organization did a survey where they asked people this question: Do you believe that dinosaurs and humans coexisted? The proportion that answered yes, dinosaurs and humans coexisted was about 40%. That's 40% who thought that the Flintstones was a reality <laughs> TV series. Now, you know, we can't keep those folks from voting. And I wouldn't want to because they have other strengths. You know, they, they bring other things to the table. But what we can do is try to reach them. So maybe at some subconscious level, my reasoning about outreach is that good science comics can undo the damage of beloved bad science cartoons. <laughs> so we, I guess we're the antidote to that. Mm. And and people being people having a working knowledge of science, they're they're fairly well informed. Do you feel that that kind of influences policy? Does that does that somehow guide? Um, political decisions and especially in times of crisis like like we recently experienced yes but the person that i'm trying to reach you know and i think in my heart of hearts who is the person that i'm trying to reach and i think of say a congressman hmm. who is waiting on his flight in dc and maybe that congressman is serving on the house science and technology committee <laughs> And he's, you know, looking, okay, I need to find something to read. And he stumbles on Scientific American Mind. And then he uh, or she, you know, picks it up and looks at it, and they like it. <laughs> you know, they might, and, and they might be having some kind of existential crisis to like it. But there's some part of them that says, hey, this is kind of interesting. And you know what? Um, maybe that's worth paying more attention to. You know, maybe I don't completely buy into, you know, everything that, about it, but I understand the importance of it, and people understand the importance of it. And look, there are these diseases, and certainly someone that I care about is being affected by these diseases. Hey, you know, maybe, maybe we should pay more attention to that. And so, you know, part of, I think, what our challenge is is to make the invisible visible again. And that's, if you think about it, the ultimate challenge there is the brain. You know, you've got this sort of gooey, tofu-y thing that it looks like a cauliflower on the outside, and, you know, this looks like, I don't know, some stuff on the inside. You know, how do you make that real? You know, how do you make uh, a story that brings that to life and shows those inner workings? And how do you do it to an audience, for an audience, that is sort of ambivalent about it? You know, that might be a little distracted. But, you know, those are exactly, those are my people, you know, in terms of who I want to, who I'm reaching for and who I think the comics are reaching for, it is that audience. Yeah, I think congressmen are definitely distracted. <laughs> you have to fight through a lot to get to them. Um, so, so just in closing, um, what advice do you have for, for people in science to, to really make their work uh, accessible and interesting and if I walked into a room 
you know, it, whether it's Starbucks or a lecture hall, and I announced, I am now going to lecture on the role of the hippocampus in memory. <laughs> I would probably drive out only slightly fewer people than if I yelled fire. Because there would be a lot of people who could care less about that topic in the abstract. But a lot of those same people would weep, would shed tears over the tragic story of Henry Malison, a man who lost his ability to store new memories after a surgery that was designed to cure his epilepsy, failed in many respects, had to be reintroduced to people he met every single day. You know, that's real. That's something that you and I, anybody could relate to. And, oh, by the way, you learned how the hippocampus works. <laughs> so uh, the way I uh, consider the comics is really to be a knowledge portal. You know, it's a funny twist, the pretty trinket that would compel this ambivalent, casual listener to just lean in a little bit in wonder. Uh, and I guess another way to think about it is um, the comics are like a zombie fungus. <laughs> Okay, and let me explain. So in Brazil, there's a species of fungus that infects carpenter ants and controls their behavior. It makes them into zombies, real walking dead. They are compelled, those, those ants, when they're infected, they find a leaf, they lock their jaws on the underside at a particular time of day and in a place that is perfect for the fungus to generate these horrific fruiting bodies that sprout out of the poor ant like a scene from aliens. So, you know, maybe the comics are fruiting bodies for ideas. I'm making zombies for science. <laughs> that might just be the catchphrase I use for your talk. <laughs> um, and is it fair to say that you've learned something in, in, your, um, in making these comics? You know, you, you talked about... Um, uh, ben, you know, reading about Benjamin Franklin, and it sounds like you've really got to explore kind of the history of your field, too. So, uh, Sammy, I didn't learn a, a doggone. <laughs> uh, seriously, um, my work does affect how I approach science. And, and you know what? I never imagined that it would. I, I'm surprised because the, the main practical benefit I derive from working on the comics is that each one is sort of like a mini review on a topic area. Mm. So what you see is an end product, but the reality is I probably go through, you know, 10 peer reviewed papers and review articles to develop, you know, the, the, the concept that, that ends up in the final comic. And, you know, that you, you can't help but learn something. So it's really kind of a way to, to give me an updated view on the state of the art. And again, because I'm placing it in the context of society, it gives, I, I think I, I have a broader view of it. Um, and the emphasis on story, it points out to me how our concepts of truth can change over long historical timelines. And it's really taught me that science is an, it's not a destination, but it's an asymptotic journey. We never really quite get there. Mm. Mm -hmm. It really allows me to place my own work in a much broader context. And Great. Okay. Well, I think 
I think we'll end there. Um, I wanted to say that one of the things that we're doing next, I'm really excited about, we're making a series of short animations that are actually based on the comics. And um, so this is something that Jorge is publishing uh, currently on his YouTube channel. It's called PhD TV. And so uh, we're using some of the same concepts and in some cases some of the same artwork from the comics, but it allows us to introduce some additional details that we just couldn't we didn't have room for in the comics. And you'll find those in PhD TV. And if you want to keep up, if somebody's interested in this stuff and they want to follow what we're doing, you can um, you can follow us on Twitter. And I hope to use the comics as an interactive means of learning about the brain. There are just so many ways to use the comics as a learning portal. And we're just searching and looking for ways to explore those. Again, that was Dr. Dwayne Godwin from Wake Forest University. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. For Charles Lee, Frank Ling, Forrest Goulden, and Joanna Rowell, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon, and keep on grokking.